0: episode on Audibly Speaking, I want to talk about Watergate at 50, June 17th, 2022. This is an extemporaneous recording in which I try to engage as a kind of stream of consciousness my memories as an historian of what is most important about the Watergate scandal. There's going to be a lot of Watergate retrospectives in the next few days and weeks, and I want to try to together something that is a little bit different from the kind of things that the media is going to present. Now, what the media will present, I predict, is a kind of comparison and contrast of Watergate with the Trump scandals and the attack on our democracy, which is so much in the news today. Really, historians don't like to do these kinds of comparisons and contrasts particularly when it focuses equally on these two disparate events that happened 50 years apart. They think that it devalues really both of those events when you try to compare and contrast them. The attack on democracy under the Trump administration and the Watergate scandals are of equal significance. And in trying to describe both of them or to juxtapose both of them in a single program tends to result, in my opinion, and I think in the opinion of a lot of historians, in a kind of story that doesn't tell the truth about either. Now, I don't think there's any question that the attack on democracy on January 6th and the Trump scandals leading up to that attack were far worse than Watergate, far more dangerous to our democracy than Watergate. But we need to look at Watergate and any other historical subject in its own frame of reference, in the context of its own times. That's the only way to make sense of an event historically because it helps us to illuminate other things that were going on at the same time, And it also reflects many factors that existed at that particular time and place. And it's enough to grapple with those factors without bringing in an event from a different time period altogether and trying to say something profound about both events. I don't know that that's possible. The Trump scandals deserve their own program. So let's start talking about Watergate. Now, Warnergate is a shorthand for all the scandals in the Nixon presidency that began, I suppose, when he started his presidency in 1969 through the end of his presidency in 1974, when he was the first and so far only president to resign the office of the presidency in disgrace. More particularly, Watergate is the name of a condominium complex in the District of Columbia next to Lincoln Center along the Potomac River, which was a very fashionable place for politicians and other well-heeled District of Columbians to live at the time of Watergate. And Watergate, the condominium complex, also had rented out space to certain businesses, among which was the Democratic National Committee. And so on June the 17th, 1972, exactly 50 years ago tomorrow, some individuals who were paid and directed by the Nixon White House secretly burglarized the headquarters of the Democratic National Party in the Watergate building. Now, they had done this a few weeks earlier, and the reason they were engaged in these burglaries was because they were trying to figure out whom the Democrats were going to nominate for president in the election of 1972. The Democratic National Convention was only a few weeks away, and it looked like on the strength of the primaries leading up to May and June of 1972, that the Democrats would nominate George McGovern, a senator from South Dakota, who was an extremely liberal Democrat. And Nixon, because of his deep-seated fears that somehow the Democrats would manage to defeat him as they had in some elections earlier, would sort of pull a fast one at the Democratic National Committee and nominate somebody besides McGovern. Nixon simply could not believe that the Democrats would be foolish enough to nominate someone so far outside the mainstream as George McGovern, which of course turned out to be a colossal miscalculation on Nixon's part because that's precisely what the Democrats ended up doing. But at any rate, I don't mean to imply that Nixon knew about the burglars or ordered the burglaries that took place in May and June. It's just that he had directed his men at all levels of his administration to do what they could to dig up dirt against his enemies and they went a little bit too far as you might say and they began doing illegal things some of which were known to the president either before or after the deeds were committed and some of the things were not known by the president before they were committed and among the latter was the break-in of the democratic national headquarters on june 17th 1972. The reason that event is important is because the burglars were arrested, they were caught in the act, and when they were brought down to police headquarters, they had identification information that linked them to the White House, and in one case, linked them to the committee to re-elect the president, as of course, Nixon was running for re-election that year, 1972. So that was the beginning of the public portion of the so-called Watergate scandals, which were the scandals in which the Nixon administration had done illegal things. And these things were finally like chickens coming home to roost. They were finally beginning to be made public. Of course, at the beginning, nobody knew what these burglars were trying to do. Nobody knew for sure that they were linked to the White House, although the identifications made that seem likely. But the White House called this a third-rate burglary and dismissed the significance of it entirely and declared that it had nothing to do with this sordid affair, the burglarizing of the Democratic National Headquarters. There was no evidence that it did know immediately after the burglary. And therefore, this event had almost no impact on the resulting election of 1972. There were stories from time to time in the newspapers about the indictment of the burglars. There were rumors that they had closer relations to the Nixon White House than had appeared at the start. But nothing could be traced to President Nixon, and most people believed what Nixon said, which was that it was a third-rate burglary of no particular consequence. What turned out to be the case, of course, was that this was an operation that was directed from within the Nixon White House. Nixon himself did not know about it in advance, but within five days of the burglary, He had found out that the Nixon White House had been behind the burglary. And from that point forward, Nixon launched a concerted campaign to cover up the White House involvement from the American people. And of course, that is why he was forced to resign in 1974. Not so much because his administration had engaged in illegal actions, but rather because It had covered up the illegal actions when the press and the courts began asking the White House to come clean on what it knew. And so this has always created the uh, sense that whenever there's a scandal, it's not the original crime that is the worst thing about the scandal, it is the the attempt to cover it up. Well, that's a bit of a stretch because the original crime was bad enough. Here you have a president trying to control the outcome of a presidential election by using the tools of the presidency to investigate the other political party as far as to burglarize their headquarters. And this was not the first illegal action by the Nixon administration. So we're going to have to step back a second and take a look at those other illegal actions before we look at how Nixon got caught. There is no way to tell the story of Watergate in a few minutes. I'm sorry, that just is not possible. Anyone who tries to do it is going to leave so much out that the result is going to be a slipshod job of trying to encompass an historical event as important as Watergate was. So we have to go back several decades. Watergate was the result of three profound influences, influences of the times in which it took place. The first profound influence was what Arthur Schlesinger Jr. called the Imperial Presidency. After World War II, the American people allowed the president to amass enormous power and to exercise enormous power, often in secret, in order to protect the nation from its Cold War enemies, particularly the Soviet Union, but communism in general. Communism was, to the middle of the 20th century, what terrorism is to the early 21st century. Communism was the threat that everyone was talking about and everyone was afraid of. So the imperial presidency gave presidents from Truman to Nixon enormous power to act in secret. And, for example, in the 1950s, Eisenhower and his administration overthrew foreign governments, notoriously in Iran, which was, of course, totally illegal and unconstitutional but which was done in secret, so no one could possibly complain. And then, of course, in the 1960s, President Kennedy launched illegal attempts to kill Fidel Castro, which was an example of the exercise of the imperial presidency. Lyndon Johnson involved the United States in an increasingly deep involvement in the Vietnam War Without bringing the American people along in the decision making and fudging the facts across the line, so that when the lies that the Johnson administration had told about Vietnam became public, which happened to be during the Nixon administration, there was a tremendous lapse and loss of faith in presidents and their honesty. And Nixon took the hit on this. Johnson was the one who had lied but faith in government declined precipitously during the Nixon administration. Now, Nixon was a president who wanted to control his environment. So Nixon was tailor-made to be an imperial president. He didn't question the right of a president to do things in secret, if it was supposedly for the good of the country. And Nixon had to try to win or wind down the Vietnam War, since it was still raging strong when he became president in January 1969. So Nixon was going to engage in illegal secret actions of his own. Where Nixon was different was that he engaged in illegal actions that were secret against American citizens, not just against foreign countries. And the Nixon administration began spying on domestic opponents of the Vietnam War, but also of the Nixon administration itself. That brings us to the second factor that leads into Watergate. The first factor was the imperial presidency. The second factor was the psychology of Richard Nixon. Nixon, as I said, was what James David Barber, the famous political scientist, described as an active negative president. He was an activist personality, but he also had a negative point of view, seeing enemies all around him. He saw so many enemies around him that it does not seem to be a stretch to say that he was a paranoid personality. And Nixon wanted to exercise power in order to control his environment. And you have to understand that Nixon had lost a presidential election in 1960 by a very narrow margin to John F. Kennedy. And Nixon was never going to forget that. Two years after that event, he ran for governor of California and he lost that election, which was particularly humiliating for Nixon. So everyone assumed that Nixon's career was over and he had to rebuild it step by step with the aid of the Democrats who self-destructed in the 1960s after the death of JFK and with the advent of the deepening crisis of the Vietnam War and the riots of the 1960s and all of the other turbulence that we associate with that decade of the 1960s. So Nixon, when he ran for president in 1968, Wanted to take advantage of the grievances of the American people. So he tended to divide the public, very much like Trump did, if I can make a comparison that I will only make for a second. Nixon divided the American people. He took advantage of the Southerners' dislike of the Civil Rights Movement to align himself with the white South, and he promised to bring the country together, even though he was using a politics of division in the election of 1968. He won that election, but it was also very, very close. So Nixon had a history of having to wage elections that turned out to be elections that he either barely lost or that he barely won. And it was that psychology that he was going to have in his mind as he approached the election of 1972, which he desperately wanted to control the way he controlled the external environment generally. Now, before the election, Nixon wanted to get his way in Vietnam. He wanted to end the war in Vietnam without making it look like a humiliating retreat. And so Nixon thought that in order to do this, he had to clear the deck of his domestic enemies as well as control the enemy in Vietnam. There were a lot of people who disliked Richard Nixon. Just because Nixon was paranoid doesn't mean that a lot of Americans lacked hatred for Nixon. Nixon was a man who attracted enemies and Nixon loathed them and he went after them, sometimes in secret. And so what we're going to talk about now are the secret actions, secret to the American people. Most of these were not secret to Richard Nixon that preceded the Watergate break-in and which created a tone in the Nixon environment that allowed people like the leaders of the burglary to think that they were doing Nixon's will. There was a kind of psychology in the White House that once we do X number of illegal things, then for some reason they may not be illegal, especially if the president should have imperial power. So those things were operating at the same time and setting the stage for the Watergate scandal. The final factor, I mentioned there were three, that you must understand was the factor of the Vietnam War. I've been talking about it, but the Vietnam War was an incredibly frustrating war for the presidents. It was a bipartisan war. Democratic presidents and Republican presidents were up to their eyeballs in responsibility for the Vietnam War. You could say it began with Truman uh, escalated under Eisenhower, a Republican, Escalated still further under JFK, mushroomed under LBJ, and for a time under Nixon, it actually expanded once again. So it is not correct to pin the Vietnam War on the Democratic Party. It was truly bipartisan. But it was a war that was basically unwinnable, fought by a country that thought it could do anything. So the reality that the Vietnam War was not a war that the United States could win at the price that would have been necessary for it to so-called win, which would be perhaps a 100-year war involving hundreds of thousands, if not millions of deaths, it was a price America was unwilling to pay. So in that sense, the Vietnam War was a war that, dragged the presidents in because no president wanted to be the first president to lose a war to the communists. And it was a war that presidents found it difficult to get out of. So Nixon had to figure out what strategies to use to win in Vietnam. And he believed he had to put down his domestic enemies at the same time in order to to achieve that goal. And because the first goal was predicated upon the second, in Nixon's eyes, anything was allowed. In Nixon's eyes, what he was doing against his domestic enemies was for national security. And so Nixon justified it that way, and he created an environment within his administration in which some of the illegal actions he directed himself or ordered, but many more were done by underlings who thought that they were doing his bidding and completely bought his argument that everything they were doing for Richard Nixon and to help Richard Nixon win re-election was really what they were doing to help America. And so this deluded thinking helped lead to the Watergate break-in. But let's talk about the other violations of law That we associate with Nixon and that fall under the umbrella of Watergate before we look at the break in and how Nixon was caught. A good example of the intertwining of the Vietnam War and the Watergate scandals was the Pentagon Papers case in 1971. The Pentagon Papers were secret histories of the Vietnam War and the federal government's involvement in it during the 1960s. And what the Pentagon Papers showed was that the government had been telling lies to the American people about progress in the Vietnam War during the 1960s under the Johnson administration. Now, this was an internal history of the Vietnam War, but a State Department employee, Daniel Ellsberg, released the documents to the New York Times. He secreted them out in his briefcase and he released it to the New York Times, which proceeded to publish them in 1971. Of course, this exposed the illegalities and the lies that the government had told during the Johnson presidency. Now, Nixon could have left that alone because it really made Johnson look bad, not Nixon. But Nixon was conducting the war. And remember, Nixon had this fetish about controlling his environment. And so Nixon sued the New York Times, hoping to get the courts to prevent the New York Times from publishing the Pentagon Papers. Well, the Supreme Court sided with the press, and in a monumental uh, victory for the First Amendment, freedom of the press, the Supreme Court ruled that the government could not prevent publication of the Pentagon Papers. So Nixon was furious by this. He wanted somehow to get back at Ellsberg, who was sort of symbolic to Nixon of the left-wingers who hated Richard Nixon. And so there were people inside his administration, Charles Colson in particular, who was an advisor to Nixon, who set in motion a plot to burglarize the psychiatrist's office of Daniel Ellsberg which was done by a group of people within the White House who were dubbed as the White House plumbers. They were supposed to stop the leaks of secret information that Nixon did not want released to the press, such as the Pentagon Papers. Well, these White House plumbers secretly broke into the office of Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist, And they got away with it. No one knew that the government was involved in that break-in at the time. This was 1971. But later on, it would implicate high-level officials of the Nixon administration, such as his deputies, John Ehrlichman and Bob Haldeman, the White House chief of staff, who were aware of the burglars' action in the Daniel Ellsberg case, as was Nixon at one point. So Nixon had good reason to want to suppress the news of Watergate, even though he didn't know about the Watergate break-in in in advance, because he feared that if the Watergate break-in was exposed, then the White House's involvement in the Pentagon Papers case would also be exposed, and that involved high-level officials Very close to the president himself. And so Nixon, because he knew that the involvement reached very close to the president in the case of the Ellsberg affair, he used that as a reason to try to cover up the Watergate break in, which was not so close to the president's involvement. That was done by people connected to the committee to re elect the president. They were doing what they thought Nixon wanted them to do. But Nixon could have made a clean break of the Watergate break-in and he could have cracked the whip against those who were involved and he would have gotten credit for stopping an illegal action, cracking the case of an illegal action that even though it was within his administration would not have reached as far as the president. And so in a way, Nixon could have made a clean break of Watergate in the summer of 1972, and probably went on to win a landslide election, which he eventually did do. But instead of doing that, he covered it up, and he proceeded to continue the cover-up right on up to the end when he was forced to resign. It's very clear that the Ellsberg case and the break-in in 1971 was a pivotal reason for the decision to cover up the Watergate break in itself. Now, after the election was over, Nixon was winding up the Vietnam War. The Vietnam War officially ended in January 1973 when there was a peace agreement signed between the Vietnamese and the United States government, which led to the release of the prisoners of war and also announced that there would be a pullout of U.S. troops later in 1973. At the beginning of 1973, it looked like the Watergate scandal was winding down. It had not affected the election, and one of the reasons it had not was because the Nixon administration had been promising pardons and cash payments to the burglars if they would only keep quiet about White House involvement. And so they did keep quiet about it until January 1973 when cracks began to form in the solid wall of silence that had been purchased by these promises of payments and pardons. There was a federal court judge, John Sirica, who threw the book at the Watergate burglars. He suspected there was something going on, that the burglars were not not telling for nefarious reasons, such as bribes or promises of pardon, who knows? And Sirica handed down severe sentences, long-term terms of imprisonment. And this caused one of the burglars, James McCord, to come out and assert that the White House had been offering payments and pardons as an inducement for the burglars to keep quiet and to go to jail without saying anything about White House involvement. Now, of course, the Nixon administration denied that it had anything to do with the burglary, or that it was at all offering payments or promises of pardon, even though it was doing those things in reality. And Nixon pretty much felt that he could keep this quiet as long as he increased the amount of money he was offering to the burglars to purchase their silence. But McCord had come clean. And this was one of the things that Nixon could not control. And so anxiety was building in the Nixon White House in the early months of 1973. One of the leaders of the cover-up was Nixon's personal attorney, John Dean, who was only in his early thirties. He was a very young attorney. He was in over his head, but he had led the cover-up in 1972 and he was deeply entrenched in the Watergate cover-up. Dean was getting increasingly anxious in the early weeks of 1973. He could see that the cover-up was unraveling, and he tried to approach Nixon and tell him that there was a cancer growing on the presidency, and it would have to be cut out, and that the cancer had reached to the highest levels of his administration. Haldeman, Ehrlichman and John Mitchell, who had authorized the break-in in in the first place. He, of course, was the Attorney General of the United States and the leader of the committee to re-elect the president in 1972. And Dean began to think about going to the prosecutors to make the best deal he could. He knew that he was in danger of going to jail for the cover-up, as were Haldeman and Ehrlichman, and perhaps even Nixon. Because remember, Nixon not only knew about the cover-up just as soon as Dean did and Mitchell, but he was the leader of the cover-up. The president was the leader. But in early 1973, Dean tried to persuade Nixon that if he came clean and cut loose his top advisors, somehow he might be able to survive. Nixon ordered Dean to go to Camp David and write a history of what he knew about the cover-up. Well, of course, Dean knew that Nixon knew everything that Dean knew about the cover-up. And so Dean believed that Nixon was setting him up to be the fall guy in the cover-up of the Watergate break-it, and that if he released this report, Nixon would blame Dean as well as Haldeman and Ehrlichman, to save his own neck as President of the United States. So Dean, by this time, by March of 1973, Dean had had enough. He decided that he would go to the prosecutors, cut a deal with them, probably go to prison for a short period of time, maybe not, maybe be given immunity for his testimony, not only to the Justice Department, but to the Senate Watergate Committee that was Just then being formed, Dean still had hopes that he could wriggle free, but he was no longer on Nixon's side, and Nixon could see this. In April 1973, Haldeman and Ehrlichman resigned, and Nixon fired Dean. Nixon also tried to interfere with the Justice Department and persuade the Justice Department not to give Dean immunity from prosecution For his testimony to the the Senate Select Committee, which would be meeting in the summer. The Justice Department refused to agree to Nixon's terms. Dean then went to the prosecutors and began negotiating. He hoped for immunity. The Senate Watergate Committee, which was famous for meeting in televised sessions during the summer of 1973, did give Dean immunity, at first by a divided vote in the committee later by a unanimous vote, and Dean proceeded to testify that summer. He was the star witness in June of 1973 and undoubtedly was the chief reason why these Senate Watergate hearings that were televised were the bombshell that they proved to be. Dean, who turns out to have had a photographic memory reported on his conversation with the president in March 1973 when he reported that he told the president that there was a cancer growing on the presidency and it would need to be cut out. In other words, that the cover-up would have to come to an end and Nixon would have to come clean about the involvement of his highest advisers. At the time, of course, Nixon did not want to do this. Dean also felt that Nixon was asking him leading questions in this famous meeting with Nixon in March 1973, when the cover-up was discussed. And Dean had the impression that there was some kind of recording device in the Oval Office, and that Nixon was trying to get Dean to say things in this meeting that would help Nixon in any future court case. In any case, Dean did not know if there was a recording device, but it made the investigators on the Senate committee begin asking questions about this very issue. The following month, in July 1973, the investigators had finally interviewed Alexander Butterfield, who was an aide to the president and one of the very few people to know that Nixon did have an automatic tape recording system in the Oval Office and in other parts of the White House that automatically recorded every single conversation Nixon had, particularly in the Oval Office. So at this juncture, the crucial question was, who was lying? Was it Nixon or was it Dean? Most Americans believed Nixon because, after all, an overwhelming majority of Americans had reelected the president in 1972. They knew Nixon for a generation. Many Americans didn't like Nixon, particularly in terms of his personality, but they felt that they knew him, and they certainly did not know John Dean. And so in a decision as to whether to believe Nixon or to believe Dean, most Americans continued to believe Nixon. But the discovery of the recording equipment, the discovery that Nixon had recordings of his conversation, could determine, without any ambiguity, who was lying, Nixon or Dean, and who was in charge of the cover-up, and whether the President was innocent of involvement, as Nixon was asserting. From that point on, the Senate Watergate Committee did everything it could to elicit from Nixon, to try to pry from Nixon the Watergate tapes, but Nixon refused to release them, citing executive privilege. And of course, this began to wear and tear on the public's confidence in the president and belief in the president's probity. As I indicated, I am not going to make too many comparisons between the past and the present, But at this very moment, of course, there are televised hearings by the House of Representatives in the Trump allegations, in the Trump scandals, and these televised hearings have brought back memories of the 1973 Senate Watergate hearings. So far, of course, the House hearings about the Trump scandals have not raised the kind of furor and spectacle and historical drama that we saw with the senate watergate committee hearings in 1973 but they have just started and one cannot predict the outcome of the present drama in any case the watergate hearings in 1973 were spectacular because not only did dean testify and butterfield of course but also haldeman ehrlichman and john mitchell All three of those members of the Nixon's rogues gallery, Haldeman, Ehrlichman, and Mitchell, tried to defend the president, but it was clear that they were also trying to defend themselves and that they were not being forthcoming in their testimonies. So by the end of the summer, the issue was clear as Howard Baker, a senator from Tennessee, said it. The key question was, what did the president know and when did he know it? by getting copies of the tapes, the government and the American people could know what the president knew and when he knew it. But again, Nixon refused to release the tapes. He offered to release transcripts of the tapes that were edited down, but that was unacceptable to both the Senate Watergate hearings and the Justice Department that was investigating the case, but that was unacceptable to the Congress. And so there was a back and forth during the fall. But in October 1973, Nixon fired the special prosecutor, Archibald Cox, whom Nixon had hired to get to the bottom of the Watergate case. That was the Saturday Night Massacre, because the Attorney General, Elliot Richardson, refused to carry out the firing, believing that it was going to cause a constitutional crisis, which it did. And so Nixon tried to get others in the hierarchy of the Justice Department to carry out the firing of Archibald Cox. One of the director of the FBI, William Ruckelshaus, who had been a previous administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency, also refused to fire Cox and resigned as part of the Saturday Night Massacre. Finally, Nixon got a lower-level Justice Department figure, Robert Bork, to carry out the deed and dismiss Cox. But this was a constitutional crisis of the First Order, and people began to lose faith, and the support for Nixon on the part of the public precipitously declined as a result of this event. Nixon was fielding so much outrage from the public and from the press that he quickly agreed to the appointment of another special prosecutor, Leon Jaworski, who proceeded to investigate the president as diligently as Cox had. So Nixon's fortunes were in a state of free fall by the end of 1973, and Nixon had very little leeway left to remain in power. At nearly the same time, Nixon's vice president, Spiro Agnew, was caught up in a criminal investigation of taking bribes as governor of Maryland. And Agnew, of course, was Nixon's safety valve, his firewall against being impeached, he thought, because Agnew was at least as unpopular as Nixon was, and perhaps more so. But because Agnew was under investigation and was guilty of the charges that were lodged against him, the Justice Department was able to maneuver Agnew out of office by offering him a plea bargain where Agnew pleaded no contest to the charges in return for resigning the vice presidency and keeping out of jail. So Nixon had to appoint a new vice president, and he appointed Gerald Ford, a long-term congressman from Michigan, to become vice president. Nixon's firewall had disappeared. The walls were closing in on Nixon, and to mix metaphors, drip by drip, the tapes were beginning to do their deadly work against Nixon. Nixon refused to release the tapes, but he did release transcripts. And he also released a statement that one of the tapes that was sought out By the investigators, was a tape that had a 13 and a half minute gap in the portion of the tape where Watergate was discussed. The tape was released with the gap, and it was subjected to analysis by audio experts who reported that the gaps were caused by multiple manual erasures that were deliberate, either by Nixon's secretary, Rosemary Woods, or perhaps by Nixon himself. Again, public confidence in the president suffered a free fall as a result of this revelation. In 1974, desperate to try to scramble out of the hole that he was in, Nixon released transcripts of some of the tapes, but he did not release entire transcripts. He only released edited transcripts. And he did not release edited transcripts of all of the tapes only selected ones he went on television to show the spines of the albums in which these transcripts were included but the albums concealed the fact that there were very few transcripts representing very few pages of the tapes in question worse for nixon was the language he used on the tape which was riddled with obscenities, deleted by the famous phrase, expletive deleted. So Nixon came across as being both secretive, shockingly coarse, and self-obsessed in the conduct of the presidency. By this time, the case on the tapes was winding its way through the courts and getting closer and closer to the Supreme Court. In June of 1972, the Supreme Court ruled by a unanimous decision in the case of united states versus richard nixon that nixon would have to release all the tapes in their entirety and that his claim of executive privilege unlimited executive privilege was not constitutional so nixon did release all the tapes including the famous tape of the june 22 1972 conversation six days after the watergate break-in When Nixon ordered the cover-up to begin the cover-up of the break-in, he ordered the CIA to go to the FBI and order the FBI to stop investigating the Watergate burglary because of national security reasons. But the tape revealed that it had nothing to do with national security and that Nixon was interfering with the course of justice. That was the smoking gun and Nixon lost nearly all support from Republicans, not just Democrats, in the Senate. He had one course, and that was resignation, and he took it in August of 1974. The Watergate scandal was over, but the Watergate investigation of the scandal would continue thereafter. To conclude this episode, I want to bust a few myths especially the great Woodstein myth that the Watergate case was cracked only because of the reporting of Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein, hungry young reporters for the Washington Post. From all the evidence, especially in the light of history, this is an absurd and laughable deformation of the truth. In actuality, it was the courts and the Congress that cracked the case bringing Nixon to heel and saving American democracy in the process, with a bit of help from Nixon himself. It wasn't Woodward and Bernstein who got James McCord to spill the beans about the burglars. It was Judge John Sirica with his stiff sentences. The burglars' testimony spurred John Dean to talk, which led to Alexander Butterfield and the White House taping machine. Nixon brought suspicion on himself by refusing to release the tapes, then preserving them and not burning them while he still could, without penalty. Without the tapes it was Nixon's word against Deans, and without the tapes that was an impasse impossible to overcome. It was Nixon's stonewalling, his Saturday Night Massacre, and his decision to preserve the tapes along with the court's intervention, all the way up to the Supreme Court, coupled with a bipartisan coalition in the Senate hearings that exposed Nixon's crimes and Republican senators who held Nixon accountable and forced him to resign. Today an anti-democratic Republican Party refused to hold the president accountable through two impeachments, in which Trump's guilt and threat to democracy was obvious to anyone with the honesty to look at it plain in the face. In the 1970s, Woodward and Bernstein were not necessary to crack the Watergate case. Today, there is no bipartisan coalition in support of the facts, as there was in the 1970s. The press remains today what it was in the 1970s, a mere onlooker, and no one else can fill the breach but a Congress and a court system that is strong and faithful to the truth. One seems to be wanting at this time, as one clearly existed in the 1970s. Thanks for listening. Postscript In the interests of brevity, I spoke about the Daniel Ellsberg psychiatrist office break-in and the Watergate break-in in in June of 1972 as sort of bookends of one another, and the one helps explain the other. But I don't want to leave the impression that Watergate was reduced to two criminal actions— There was a whole variety of criminal violations by the Nixon administration, most of which Nixon knew before, during, and after they were committed. Nixon directed the Internal Revenue Service to audit some of his political enemies, including Lawrence O'Brien, the head of the Democratic National Committee. The Nixon administration had a dirty tricks operation, and unleashed it against one of the Democratic candidates in the election campaign of 1972, Edmund Muskie, planting fake allegations that drove that drove Muskie from the campaign. Nixon had a famous enemies list of noted people in the news media and elsewhere whom the government was supposed to harass in unspecified ways and it later became a mark of distinction to be on Nixon's enemies list. But it goes without saying that in a democratic republic, an enemies list of private citizens has no business being placed in front of a president of the United States for authorization or signature. Although most of the Nixon crimes were all about power and the accumulation of power, There was also venality in Watergate, as Nixon used the government to enhance and improve various private residences to the tune of millions of dollars. And of course, that was a violation of the ethics rules without parallel in the American presidency. Finally, while, as I have stated, the Watergate affair and the Trump scandals deserve their own stories and their own accounts separate from one another, it is, of course, it is, of course, appropriate on occasion to compare scandals, and in the process, it is possible to learn more about each one. Comparison can help you understand the degree of criminality that we're talking about in each case, and so it is reasonable to see comparisons. The purpose of this broadcast has been to try to isolate our focus onto Watergate because so many of the retrospectives are engaged in comparison, and I thought it would be a good idea for a change to look solely at Watergate in its own place and time. But for the rest of the broadcast, I want to talk about some of the comparisons and contrasts between Watergate and the Trump scandals. After all, we are talking about two authoritarian presidents. The United States of America, of course, has had 46 presidents. And virtually all of them have been stable personalities who have not sought to break the Constitution and treat it like a worthless scrap of paper. One can only think of a few presidents in American history who were willing to go that far. The only presidents I can think of in that category would be Richard Nixon and Donald Trump. John Dean once said that Trump would make Nixon look like a choir boy. And that was before January 6th. I'm sure that Dean believes that even more today. And I think that's an accurate judgment. Nixon did not put the American people through the process and the agony of impeachment. He resigned before he could be impeached. He most certainly would have been impeached, and he also most certainly would have been convicted. But Nixon spared the country that trial and tribulation, something that Donald Trump on two occasions did not do. And of course, Donald Trump had control over a Republican Party which is very, very different from the Republican Party of the 1970s. There were liberal Republicans. And moderate Republicans, as well as conservative Republicans, back in the 1970s. There were Republicans who were more liberal than many Democrats in the Senate in the 1970s. So the differences between the two political parties were far less than they are today. But it isn't just about differences. The modern Republican Party is absolutely an authoritarian party. They don't go against the views of their dear leader whatever those views happen to be, or however far from the truth those views may happen to be. It is almost like a cult in deference to Donald Trump. And of course, Trump seems to be the ultimate authoritarian, as well as the ultimate amoral person in politics. One of the differences between One of the differences between watergate and the trump scandals can be seen in the reception of john dean today by trump's supporters dean is excoriated by trump supporters as in trump's own words himself a rat it seems that dean's crime in the minds of the trump supporters is not the criminal actions that he took in leading the cover-up in 1972. and No, that doesn't bother them. What bothers them is that he told the truth against Nixon in the end and ratted Nixon out. One fears to think what would have happened to the United States of America if somebody had not stepped forward when John Dean did and told the truth. At the time, of course, Dean was alone in that regard, and millions of Americans did not believe him. And Dean was sticking his neck out, and it was possible that it would have done him no good in the end. But Dean did tell the truth. And I think it's interesting that that was the thing that really gets under the skin of the supporters of Donald Trump. Now, Dean, of course did commit felonies in leading the cover-up in 1972. And if that had worked out and Watergate had been buried, Dean, of course, would have said no more and would not have come out. And perhaps Nixon would have gone on his way to commit more criminal actions, even worse ones, who knows? All we can do is evaluate what actually happened. And what actually happened is that in the early months of 1973, Dean, as I've said, went to Nixon and tried to explain to Nixon the gravity of the problem that was facing him. The fact that the cover-up could no longer be sustained. The fact that the White House was being subjected to blackmail by the burglars and that they would never be satisfied with enough money, no matter how much money was raised. But the problem was that Nixon did not seem to get it. When Nixon asked Dean how much money would be needed to pay the blackmail, Dean said it might be over a million dollars. And Nixon said, well, that wouldn't be that hard to raise. By the way, the money that was used to pay the burglars before the Watergate break-in and that later to pay off the criminal defendants so that they would keep quiet Came from campaign funds to the committee to reelect the president, and that was another violation of federal law. So the crimes of the Nixon administration continue to mount, as you can see. So when Nixon refused to understand what Dean was trying to tell him, perhaps because Nixon thought, as he said several years later, that when the president does something, it's not illegal, Dean had no choice, he thought but to go to the prosecutors. But he didn't go to the prosecutors without telling President Nixon that he was going to do precisely that. So Dean does not fit the image of the stool pigeon or the rat. He tried to get President Nixon to lead the administration out of the cover-up in March of 1973, to blow the whistle on the burglars and take whatever political hit would be the consequence. Indeed, Dean assumed that some people high up in the administration, including Dean himself, Haldeman, and Ehrlichman, might well go to jail, but that there was still a possibility of keeping the cancer from Nixon himself. Dean did not know if that was still possible, but Dean did know that the cover-up would have to come to an end. Nevertheless, Nixon disagreed. So Dean told Nixon, Ehrlichman, and Haldeman that he was going to go to the prosecutors, which is exactly what he did. Dean did not know whether this would keep him out of jail. For a while, he was promised immunity, but he was imprisoned at one point while the case went through the courts. He was finally found guilty, and he was sentenced to time served, so he served no time in prison following his conviction. So, in the end, therefore, I believe that our American democratic system relies on people telling the truth in order for it to survive. And that is what makes today's situation seem so chilling and so foreboding. Because truth-telling seems to be equated with betrayal and loyalty to a criminal An authoritarian leader appears to be the way to get ahead, and the way to get ahead appears to be all that matters in the minds of many people in our political system. We saw a particular witness come forward in June of this year, Cassie Hutchinson, who was one of the first people in the Trump administration near to the Oval Office who exposed some of the criminalities of the Trump administration. Before she stepped forward at the age of 25, more prominent people like the lawyers around Trump refused to testify. Now they are stepping forward and some other people are stepping forward just as what happened in Watergate. But it takes one person to get the stream of truth-tellers to flow in any historical event, if it ever will flow. We do not know if we're going to get through this latest bout with the Trump scandals. The Trump scandals seem to be unending. It didn't end with Trump's defeat in the election. Instead, he created this big lie, deluding millions and millions of people in order to set the stage for a return to power and another try at destroying American democracy. What will it take for Americans to wake up to the danger of Donald Trump and to realize that they're being played for chumps? One doesn't know. Watergate lasted for two to three years. Our present nightmare has lasted for five to seven years, and still the American people don't seem to get it. One hopes that the stepping forward of young people like John Dean at the age of 31 or Cassie Hutchinson at the age of 25, will break the obstacles to learning about the truth in the Trump scandal as we saw in the Watergate scandal in 1973. Stay tuned for more analysis as we continue to watch the unfolding of the latest authoritarian nightmare in American history, something far worse. Than Watergate. Was John Dean a hero or a rat? Well, you know, history does not unfold in an Aristotelian way where you have either villains or heroes. But I would say that Dean was more of a hero than a villain, even though, of course, he was neither all one thing or all another. He wasn't a rat because of the reasons I've just gone over. But think about this. There was no one willing to come forward to tell the truth about Richard Nixon before John Dean. Dean was all alone. It was his word against the President of the United States. If he had not gone forward to the Senate Select Watergate Committee, there would have been no story in the summer of 1973 to investigate. Dean did not know that Nixon had tapes, that would reveal that Dean was telling the truth, although he suspected that there might be a taping system. He simply did not know, and nobody knew until Alexander Butterfield broke the news before the Senate Watergate hearings.